Good to be with you today. We're going to be looking at Psalm 90. What we just heard, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to that uh, psalm. Uh, part of our series this summer in a song for all seasons. So uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's one uh, in the chair back under the chair there in front of you. It's on page 522. So just uh, follow along with us. This is a song written by Moses. And uh, it's one of the oldest, actually, in the Psalms. And uh, Moses was uh, called a man of God. Well, how, do, how does a man of God uh, become a man of God after 40 years of basically living in Egypt as a failure, leaving, and then another 40 years living in Midian in the desert as a shepherd, and then another 40 years uh, basically... Um, wandering in the desert and leading a, a basically a, a funeral procession. How does a man do that? Well, Psalm 90 is shares some insights that Moses had and uh, that we too might have a victory in the, the end as well. It's believed to have been written about the time that the people of Israel refused to follow Moses and believe God uh, and instead of trusting for the promised land by faith, they turned back in unbelief and incurred God's anger. As a result, Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. Many of us know that story. God promised that there would not be one man left over the age of 20 that would enter the promised land, all except for Caleb and Joshua and Moses, everyone. Miriam, his sister, gone. Aaron, his brother, gone. All of his generation, all of his friends, family members, you know, gone. Moses would look around probably and say to himself, who's left? You know, if there was ever a time in anyone's life where stability was needed, it was this time for Moses. Permanent was not a word in his vocabulary. Israel camped a total of 42 times in their wandering, in their journey. They were nomads, they were vagabonds, and they longed for a home they didn't have. Last week, Pastor Nate shared a beautiful picture of what it means to be home. We're gonna be expanding on that today and uh, learning more so uh, basically, really, like Israel, we're not all that different. Moses uh, wants us to know, number one, that we are travelers, and God is our home. We are travelers, and God is our home. You know, it was once said that ever before the Hebrew mind, um, there was this picture that God was their dwelling place, and uh, he was their refuge, their fortress, their rock, their shelter in the time of storm. We read that over and over again in the Psalms. You know, after all, really, where else is there that one can turn to that doesn't change besides God and his word? Everything else has this stamp of insecurity on it, doesn't it? Everything has an expiration date. Even nature ebbs and flows, as, as we see now. Species become endangered. Mountains erode, there's tornadoes and uh, volcanoes, fires, hurricanes. 
they all speak about how frail we are and how brief our lives really are. But God, we read here right up front, says from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. It makes sense to count on him, doesn't it? Deuteronomy 33 says, the eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Now, this was written 40 years after uh, this time, just on the edge when they were gonna be going into the promised land. And Moses had the same message for them as he did at the beginning. God is your refuge. And that's what kept Moses going during these years in the wilderness. Everywhere they camped, in fact, Moses would set up this tent of meeting outside the camp. It was there that he would go in and be with the Lord. You know, while the world around him was in turmoil and the people complained, in that tent of meeting, he found something, actually someone who stayed the same. You know, it was, every, it was clear to every Hebrew that was camping with Moses that, yeah, God was there. I mean, he was there on the mountain. He was over there in that pillar of fire or in that cloud. He was over there in the tabernacle. But here, here, Moses says that God is our dwelling. Do you get the distinction? He is our refuge. What does it mean anyway? that God is our home. So let's look at what it means to dwell in God. When you think of home, what comes to mind? Well, first thing is that, is that home is a place of relationships. Now, Jesus used this common language to describe what heaven is like. He said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. There's a place of relationship. When you believed in Christ as your Savior and Lord, you came alive spiritually, really. You came home. And one day we'll see Jesus face to face and the house, the rooms, you know, that he mentions here aren't brick and mortar. No, their relationships will be with the Lord. Get that? Colossians 3 says this. It says, so if you have been raised with Christ, set your things on things above and, and where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, shall appear, you will also appear with him in glory. Do you get that? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Fellow believer, God is our dwelling place today. He is our place of relationship, strong, secure, unchanging. Next, home is a place of security. It's our safety zone. You know, when I was a kid, 
When I got hurt or fell afraid, I'd, I'd run home. You know, there we feel like not only can nothing, will nothing harm us, but nothing can harm us. Not only that, nothing will want to harm us at home because it's a place of security. God's home is a complete security. We don't even have to question the motives of our loved ones. That's the home that God describes. It's our refuge. 1 Peter 1.5, I don't see it listed here, but he says we are kept, we are guarded, we are secured by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Jesus said this, he said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone, no one, no thing, no circumstance, nothing in your life will ever pluck them out of my hand. That's security. That's the security that Jesus offers. Next, home is a place of personal interest. Now, don't confuse that with selfish interest, no. In God's family, be assured that when you're home with him, when he is your refuge, he has your best interests in mind all the time. He is personally concerned for you. He loves you. And his love for you has no strings attached. There's no love because you are this way. There's no love if you do this for me, no. Absolutely no strings. He accepts you just the way you are and he's personally interested in you. That's personal interest. Uh, Romans 8 says it the same way. It says, he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely grant us everything? God gave everything for us because he's personally interested in you. Yeah, he's interested in your very best. Number four, home is a place of rest. Home is a place where the weary can come and rest. 40 years of wandering in the desert can make a person weary, right? But there are other things, aren't there, that wear us out? A bad job, a bad boss, <laughs> bad employees, <laughs> a failing marriage, physical problems, financial pressures, destructive habits. I don't know. What is it in your life? What is it in your life that's wearing you out? Maybe Jesus is saying, I want you home. I want you to rest. You know, once my friends were and I were um, talking, and we said, you know what? Hiking on trails is boring. So we're going to get off the trail. We took out our map and compass, packed up our backpacks, and set out for these lakes where there were no trails. Now, um, I think it was up around Stevens Pass. Anyway, we hiked along a, a little trail for a while, and then we set off on our own. And as you might imagine, the, the going got, was a lot tougher than we imagined. I mean, we were, we were walking through dense underbrush, 
And whenever there's a mountain lake, there's usually a mountain there, you know, <laughs> that you've got to kind of go around or over. And it was getting cloudy and it was getting dark. <laughs> and we were wearing ourselves out and we were looking for anything to give us any kind of hope. It, maybe it's just over the rise. Maybe, maybe it's just over there. Yeah. Well, we finally made it to the top of the rise, and thank God, <laughs> there was the lake. <laughs> Just before a torrential downpour of rain, we had our tents set up, and that night, I have never been in a lightning storm so close as that one. <laughs> the next day, we, well, we were up there to fish, caught some fish, actually, and went to uh, went down the mountain and home. I was never so glad to be home <laughs> as that. Wandering. It can have a wearisome effect. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me. I am lowly, humble, and you will find rest to your souls. Because in Christ, in Christ, there's victory here. Home is a place of refuge, too. Home, sweet home. You know, uh, we don't say work, sweet work, do we? Well, some of us might. I'd say we might have issues with that. But home, sweet home, you know, when my daughter, Leanna, rounds the corner into our driveway, she'll say, home, sweet home. And we might have just been to the grocery store, you know. She'll round the corner. Why is that home, sweet home? Well, it's where Joyce Brendan, her cat, lives. It's where Sally and Minnie Mouse, her guinea pigs, live. Home, sweet home. It's a place where Leanna feels calm and safe. When the prodigal son returns, where does he return to? It's home. It's what prompts the song, come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. He's calling, calling, O sinner, come home. You know, Jesus said this about returning home. He said, everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus will never turn his back on you when you come to him. Perhaps you've never been there in the first place. You've never been to him. Well, you can count that it will, it will be home when you come to him. In the years that follow in your relationship with the Lord, it will seem more and more like what Moses is saying. The nation of Israel was weary they had no resting place. They were in perpetual change, but God was their constant home. They were weary, but in God there was peace and rest. They were in continual disappointment, but in God there was victory in their soul. They were in constant danger, but in God they had complete security. They, were, they endured the hate of their enemies, but in God there was unconditional love. That's 
what it means to be home. To have God as your dwelling place. Today, are you weary? Is your soul wanting to pull off at the nearest rest stop? God says, I have just a place for you. Only it's not a place, it's a person. It's his son, Jesus. In Christ, you'll find rest for a weary soul. Do you realize that in Christ, those words in Christ are mentioned 180 times in the New Testament? I think that God thinks that's important for us to know. Jesus said this. He said, abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, no more can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Paul said this, he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Well, the psalm goes on to continue. Um, Moses goes on to say that in verse 3 through 12, we are learners, really, and life is our school. You might be saying, well, God is eternal, I accept that. Uh, you might uh, see saying, life is going pretty well for me. I don't really think I need God right now. I mean, I'm getting by. I don't see the need. Why do I need an internal refuge? Well, Moses takes us back to school here. And he says, you need to know some critical information before you make your decision. Number one, we are frail. And life passes quickly. And Moses uses a number of different metaphors here to get the point across. Verse three, we are dust. We are like a watch in the night. That's a three-hour shift in the dark. Verse four, a brief flood after a shower that soon dries up. Verse five, a sleep that seems only a few minutes long. Verse five again. That's a sigh. That's a sigh. Do you know what a sigh is? It's a half a breath. Grass that suddenly shoots up and before evening has come, it's been cut down. It's a common. Uh, actually, Psalm 103 says that our lives are like that. Evan read that earlier. Like a flower of the field, so we flourish. And the wind passes over it and it's gone and the place thereof shall know it no more. And the Middle East grass back there did that. It would shoot up in the morning and just wither in the afternoon. No matter how many vitamins we take, no matter how much Botox we inject, no matter how many times we work out, the ultimate outcome is the same. We have an expiration date sooner or later. We all wear out because we're frail. Life passes all too quickly. Well, the second thing we must learn is this. We underestimate God's anger. Now, 
God's anger is uh, mentioned repeatedly throughout this chapter. And at Highlands, we preach the whole counsel of God. We don't skip over it. We don't sugarcoat the word. So we're going to talk about this. Up until now, it's, um, Moses is saying, life is sad, we're frail, we return to dust. Well, Moses would have us know that this too, that he's our refuge, he's unchanging, and also God's anger is consuming, he says. It's terrifying, it's powerful, and it's real. It's real. Moses knew that. He says, don't ignore this. Moses wasn't making this up. He met with God regularly. He knew. He knew firsthand the anger of the Lord, how, how Israel continued to mess up in their wanderings time after time. And this righteous, holy anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel repeatedly. And every time Moses has to go into this angry God and plead for mercy for his nation. And, and discovers as a result, the great mercy of God too. His mercy lasts for a thousand generations. You know, when we understand more fully of God's divine anger, we can appreciate more fully his grace and mercy, right? But it's not only Israel that messes up. And all of mankind has messed up in one way or another, in selfishness, pride, rebellion, you name it. Time after time. And we see in the New Testament this conclusion for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In, a, in just a few verses earlier, Romans 3.3, it says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Everybody lives under the wrath and anger of God for sin. His righteous, holy anger. And one day every person will come before the Lord. Sure, God is perfectly loving, you know? But you know what? In the same way, he is also perfectly just and righteous and holy. God's judgment will be perfectly just when we see him. There will be no excuses. We won't try to redefine sin or ignore it or excuse it. Verse 8 says this, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. That's right. Every sinful thought, every attitude, desire, affection, word, action, will be brought to light. Every motive, everyone will be revealed. Yikes. In the New Testament, we read about those who say to themselves, I'm not all that bad. I'll take my chances. But one day they'll stand before God. Why? When a person says he, he's good enough, what? What will be God's response? It says this in Romans 2. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. It's the same as what Moses is saying, really. 
Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or excuse them. Well, you might say to yourself, God, you don't understand. And God would say, you don't understand. Verse 11, who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. The fact is, we don't understand the full extent of God's anger. What will be the outcome when we stand before God and, and attempt to try to excuse or ignore our sin before him? I don't think so. Well, growing up in my parents' home, it gave me just a small taste of what that might be like. Now, I thank God I had loving, committed parents. And they were committed to discipline me when I needed it. But the most dreaded thing that my mom would ever tell me, the thing that just struck fear into my life were the words, in fact, I'm gonna let you complete it for me. You just wait until your father gets home. Okay, you've heard those words, I know. <laughs> I'm not really sure um, what was more painful, really, the punishment or the waiting part. Now, being a kid in the Brendan household took skill. It took savvy. You have to know where that fine line was between what you could get away with with mom, right? And what would move you over the line into you just wait until your dad gets home dad territory. And once you cross that line, there was no going back. <laughs> there was no excuses. I was powerless. No, nothing would help. And I knew it was going to hurt more than mom. I knew I had it coming and I never would want to repeat that again. That's discipline. <laughs> Friend, the unfortunate truth is that everyone has crossed that line into God's territory. And God is in the driveway. And life is brief. And God will be through that front door in the time it takes to sigh. We are frail, we are like grass in the midday sun, and God's wrath is real. And we need help. We need help now. <laughs> we need to be rescued from God's anger, realizing that we're only a breath away from standing before his throne. John 3.18 says this, anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Get that? Oh, you mean there's a not condemned part here? And it's based on this, the Son of God. When we stand before his throne, his question to us will be, what did you do with my son? You see, I wasn't entirely correct to say that no one understands the extent of God's anger. One person does. And his name is Jesus. 
Jesus stood between you and a holy God. As God poured out his wrath that was meant for you on him. Angry God pulled up into your driveway. He got out. He went through your front door and up the stairs. And instead of turning and going into your bedroom, he turned and went the other way into Jesus. And he poured out his wrath for your sins on him. He endured the wrath of God for us. He took every hit. For every single word, attitude, action, affection, look, whatever it was, he took it all. And today you will never have to face God's wrath. Aren't you thankful for that? Because Jesus paid it all for you and not only for you, he completely and utterly paid the wrath of God for every person on earth, past, present, and future for all eternity. And just like knowing that we can never understand the extent of God's anger, we will never know the extent of his grace and mercy until we see him face to face. Perhaps you're here today and you're, you know, you're checking this, <laughs> checking Highlands out. Kind of a heavy sermon for you to come to, but you know what? God wants you here to hear this. The psalm is especially for you. And in the thoughts you're having about, about coming to Christ, the psalm says, keep in mind the frailty of life and the brevity of life, the anger of God, and the forgiveness of Jesus. Because just a few verses before that, we read this, and this is for you. For God loved the world in this way he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The issue is the same. God is saying, what are you doing with my son? Turn to him and trust him for that gift of forgiveness in life that he paid for for you. Take him as your personal savior. Accept his payment on the cross for you who endured God's wrath that was meant for you. Well, now we're up to verse 12. And up to this time, it's been some good news. God is our refuge, some not so good news. Life is brief. It's, um, you know, life is a sigh and then we die. Not so good news. But here, is that all there is? I mean, is really that all there is? What purpose could there possibly be in living a life that's that frail? Imagine facing uh, 40 years of constant wandering and death. Imagine having to bury hundreds of your friends every single day. How could there be any hope after facing an angry God time after time? Well, that leads us to our last point. Trust in his goodness. Trust in his goodness. Is that all there is? No. Because God is great. His mercy lasts for a thousand generations. His great grace will cover our sins. And Moses believes him that he will forgive Israel because he knows God. 
and restore them to the place of favor and blessing. Because in the same way that God is righteous and holy, he is also loving and compassionate and merciful. This psalm climaxes in this faithful focus on our God, his character of grace and mercy. Because where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And Moses says, he prays this, he says, how long? Don't you love that? He says, he sees something in the future. He sees hope, but he doesn't know when God's going to fulfill that desire of his soul. So he says, how long? He's waiting for something, but he really can't see it. But he knows that there's a solution. He sees the grace of God displayed. It'd be 1,500 years before Jesus would set foot on this earth. And yet Moses placed all of his faith in the hope of his Savior and his God. This prayer of faith looks forward to the day when God will make everything right. Moses prays that we may not miss the instruction which this sad news imparts that we should live our days, not counting on the days we don't have, but counting on the days we do, right? Apply our hearts to wisdom, knowing the, how frail we are. He prays for brighter days, verses 13 through 15. He prays for joy, verses 14 and 15. He prays actually that, that um, God would give him and his people as much joy as the misery they were experiencing in the past. Well, that prayer, brothers and sisters, is answered today in Christ, where our joy, it says, will be multiplied greater than the sorrows in our life. Romans 8 says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory which shall be revealed in us in Christ. God promises far more than, than the burdens that, that we experience today. The glory to come far exceeds anything that we could imagine. And next he prays that God's work and glory be revealed. Moses prays that God's work be done, not his own. He longs to see God's power work on behalf of his people. And again, God has answered that prayer. He has revealed his glory and his power on earth in Christ. He also prays that life will be worth living, not a perpetual disappointment, but would amount to something that would last. Don't you want that too? I do. Moses must have felt the same way. You know, he watched the Jews wander in the wilderness. You know, their lives seemed so wasted and futile. And Moses would might be saying to himself too, he says, why am I here? What good will ever come of this, this futility? It's not worth doing. It won't last. Many times the people just broke his heart and grieved his spirit. And he gave and gave only to receive nothing in return. No no shout outs, no kudos. But in Christ, 
Nothing done for the Lord will go unrewarded. Even a cup of cold water given in the Lord's name will be rewarded. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, we do not give up. Even though our outer person, <laughs> there we are, is being destroyed, the inner person is being renewed day by day for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an incomparable, an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. You know, it's true. Much of what we do here will go unnoticed and unappreciated. But in Christ, having the Lord as our refuge, having the Lord as our home, being in him, our lives will have a lasting legacy. Our lives won't be a waste. What we do in the name of the Lord will bring blessing on this earth because you know what else lasts for eternity? This is souls of men. Moses placed his hope in God as his refuge. How about us? Life is brief. So Moses prays, teach us. Life is difficult, so he prays, satisfy us, Lord. And at times, life seems futile. So he prays, make my life count. God has answered every word of those prayers in Christ. So make him your refuge, your fortress, your rock, your shelter in the time of storm. Let's pray. Lord, there's, the waiting is over. Time has run out. Our lives aren't guaranteed for more than a half a breath. So let now be the time as we say, Lord, I take you as my savior. Thank you for standing in for me and taking the hit for me. Thank you for enduring the pain and the punishment for my sin. I accept your forgiveness and life. I want to follow you. Come into my life. Make me new. Father, we just do pray that you would teach us wisdom to number our days accordingly. Help us to see our lives from your perspective not counting on the days we don't have, but the days that we do. We just give ourselves to you, Lord, gladly. In Jesus' name, amen.